because most people have very little interest in history. This, however, is going to be a history lesson, quite unlike anything that anyone has ever heard. It certainly will be nothing like what we are taught in school, and yet it begins with a name which most people have heard, but probably won't be able to place. The name of E.H. Heron. Who was E.H. Heron? Dynamite's ready, George. Open the door or that's it. You think E.H. Heron
the world's richest nations had had to borrow huge sums from merchant bankers in the first place to finance the war, the Americans and the British just as much as the Germans. And they would now be repaying these loans to the banks for decades to come at a steep rate of interest. For international merchant bankers, the Rothschilds in particular, the First World War had been a gift from heaven. And people watching this should ask themselves a simple question before passing judgment. Supposing you were in business during that war, and the contract you had with the government to supply the troops with tin hats, or boots, or uniforms, or gunpowder, was netting you millions every year in profit. And then one day the war ended, and your money stopped completely. What do you think your attitude to war might be? That war was good for business is not the only lesson the ruling class has learned during this period. The Russian Revolution of 1917 terrified rich people all over the world. Watching Lenin and Trotsky taking over such a vast area of the globe, the kings and queens of Europe's tiny sovereign states in particular became extremely nervous. The question on all their minds was, supposing the communist success in Russia should inspire their own working class to rise in revolt. Many of the crown heads of Europe like England's George V, had been related to Tsar Nicholas. And the brutal execution of the Tsar and his family, particularly the bayoneting of his young daughters, sent a shockwave through the upper classes of every nation. Did a similar fate lie in store for the royal families of Holland, Sweden, Spain and England? This question was lying heavily on the thoughts of the elite when the First World War ended in 1918, and it had the effect of focusing the minds of the new Illuminati bankers and industrialists on the question of what to do for best with a defeated and dilapidated Germany. The population were poor, penniless and worn out, yet the German economy still contained some of the most sophisticated and expensive industrial stock on the planet. The Illuminati sensed an opportunity, supposing as the world's first international businessmen they could get their hands on Germany's steel mills, her coal mines, her factories, ports, and her shipbuilding industry. Over the years, certain names have become very familiar to those who maintain an interest in the Kennedy assassination. None more so than Alan Dulles, who Kennedy fired after the Bay of Pigs disaster, and yet later he somehow managed to chair the Warren Commission, which was supposed to be investigating Kennedy's death. Something few people know, however, is that Dulles and his older brother John Foster Dulles wrote the Treaty of Versailles. They were both lawyers, Sullivan and Cromwell, and it was largely they who decided that the German people must pay war reparations, totaling 135 billion marks. A mind-boggling sum at that time, which today translates into 250 trillion. When this was announced, the legendary UK economist J. Maynard Keynes maintained it was a ludicrous sum and he did a swift calculation from which he reasoned that it would take Germany until 1988, 60 years hard labor, to pay it off. But it didn't. So why? Maynard Keynes sensed that the Dulles brothers, backed as they were by the new Illuminati, were trying quite deliberately to sabotage the German economy. And they succeeded. As mass unemployment led to hyperinflation, the famous stories of people papering their walls with worthless rice marks and handing over their life savings for a loaf of bread soon followed. With German investors on their knees, 
the new Illuminati moved in and began buying up shares of stock in German industry at a knockdown price. Now, why did they do this? The cynical mind would say to Mabel Bock, but it really wasn't that simple. What they wanted was to make Germany strong again so that she would become a bulwark against Soviet communism. Germany was fighting for its life. Certain measures were needed to protect it from its enemies. I cannot say that I am sorry we applied those measures. We were a bulwark against Bolshevism. We were a pillar of Western culture. A bulwark and a pillar the West may have wished to retain. It was around this time that the newspapers, which these same rich people owned, made sure the word Bolshe, a truncation of Bolshevik, ended the English language, so that we would associate Bolshevism with aggression. And it was with these subtle and not-so-subtle methods that the international elite began to shape our destiny for the remainder of the 20th century. The intellectuals of the period were furious. They were incensed, they were depressed, and you get a very good feeling of the political atmosphere at the time from the diaries of the local politician Harold Nicholson when he writes, We've lost our willpower since our willpower is divided. The people of the governing class think only of their own fortunes, which means hatred of the right. Our class interests cut across our national interests and our goal to bed and groom. With such heavy investment coming into the country, particularly from America and Britain, Germany began to recover very rapidly. And then the new class of international financiers began searching around for a homegrown authoritarian political movement they could support. What they needed was someone they could count on to be both aggressive and expansionist. Ultra-right-wing causes, which at normal times would have been ignored and marginalized, were suddenly given very careful consideration. Until finally, the rich elite found a man and an idea which they felt might deliver the political outcome they desired. Adolf Hitler fledgling National Socialist Party. At the same time that the world's rich elite began grooming Hitler for his star in Rome, they also became even more deeply involved in military intelligence. I say even more because the Dulles brothers, Avril Harriman, and the chief of Remington, Samuel Bush, a man referred to as the original Merchant of Death, had a relationship with American military intelligence stretching back into World War I. The lesson here being that the American variant of military intelligence started out with businessmen protecting their investments, just as if they were a mafia. Right from the very beginning, it had nothing to do with national security and everything to do with money. In Hitler, the Illuminati had found a ready-made stooge who could be the face of this autocratic new movement. And when the time came to put together a new secret intelligence service which was going to help protect all the money they had tied up in the German economy, these men also found what was readily available, the order of the Skull and Bones at Yale University. Discussion of secret societies is something of a minefield because it so easily invites ridicule. It is very difficult for the general public to accept 
that the super-rich leaders of their Western world could possibly be as mad and deranged as they actually are. The public, generally speaking, are sensible and level-headed people who have to balance their checkbooks, so they inevitably tend to laugh at stories about Satanists and occult believers. But if you talk to any well-informed historians, they are all aware of the important role which various secret societies have played in human history. The Black Hand always played a pivotal role in the history of the Mafia. If you talk to anyone in the UK who is political and read books, they are always aware that the ruling class of Britain, including every member of the royal family, is a Freemason. And the emblem of the death set was sported on the caps of the high-ranking Nazi officers from the very beginning. The symbols of these secret societies always seem to play around with some kind of skull and bones motif, so that it's abundantly clear what their mission statement is. These people are pirates, willing to commit any crime for big money. And they first became established in America at Yale University in 1833 with General William Huntington Russell and Alfonso Taft. Of course, being a secret society, they made other people curious about them. And in 1867, some undergraduates from a rival campus society broke into their headquarters to see what this skull of bones thing was all about. They reported that inside there were lots of lamps and candles, many dilapidated human skulls lying next to a fool's cap and bells. And it was morbidly dark because the walls were covered in black velvet. Having established a suitably satanic atmosphere, Initiation rites were then performed by new members who had to engage in group masturbation and sodomy while they lay in a coffin. Now it's very easy to dismiss all of this as bizarre, silly and irrelevant until you see the list of Skull and Bones members who have ruled America since Skull and Bones began. Although they only graduate 15 initiates a year, those 15 have always gone on to occupy the very highest positions in American society. U.S. Secretary of State William Max Evans was a bondsman, as was Treasury Secretary Franklin McVeigh, Chief Justice Simeon Eben Bolden, and the 27th President of the United States, William Howard Taft. The founder of American football, Walter Camp, came through Scone Bones, as did the very first Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Pierre Jay and director of Standard Oil, Percy Rockefeller. Ava Will Harriman, the son of E.H. Harriman, and founder of Harriman Brothers, the largest investment bank in the world, was a bondsman. And so were both of the George Bush presidents. During his premiership, John F. Kennedy was surrounded by bondsmen, like George Bundy and David Acheson, son of Dean Acheson. Kennedy knew these men referred to each other as brothers under the skin. They swear an oath of secrecy and then ruthlessly vow to help each other's careers in any way they can throughout their lives, even if it means committing murder. In Britain, every literate person knows that all of the top police officers are Freemasons, because if there are ten candidates for a top job, a Mason will always select the brother Mason for the post. Skull and Bones works the same way. JFK took this problem so seriously that he even made speeches warning America about the danger of secret societies. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically... He knew the people on this list were neither silly nor irrelevant. 
because he knew they were the real holders of power in America, operating as they were, as an unelected shadow government accountable to no one. And it was these same people who brought Hitler to power during the 1920s by becoming business partners with leading German industrialists. The reality of the situation prevailing at that time can be very easily understood simply by looking at the cover of Fritz Thiessen's book, I Paid Hitler, on which he is depicted as a puppet master controlling Hitler's strings. Thiessen was a billionaire industrialist. He was the man who built the Bismarck. His company, United Steelworks, made three quarters of all German steel, and he joined together with Skull and Bones members Prescott Bush and George Herbert Walker to financially assist the Nazi party. Together, they recruited head of the German Central Bank, Jean Marchand, to the fascist cause, and then combined with other leading industrialists to sign the letter which convinced Hindenburg to appoint Hitler as Chancellor on the 20th of February, 1933. Had anyone inquired around this time about the postal address of the Nazi party, they could legitimately have been told that it was 39 Broadway, Manhattan, New York, because this was where Abraham Prescott Bush and George Herbert Walker kept their office. Being no fool, Fritz Thiessen used their banking services to set up secret cash funds funneled through another bank in Rotterdam, the Bank for Handel and Schaefer, to finance the building of the first official Nazi Party headquarters, the Brown House. This was all done with the full cooperation of the Dutch bankers, who orchestrated this entire sinister business with the assistance of the Thiessen family lawyer, Al Dulles. Of course, the Germans themselves were ecstatic. We've all seen the newsreels from that time in which they are stomping around in their jackboots, acting like a master race, because they had swallowed the propaganda that they were being led to glory by a superman who had rebuilt the economy and Germany's infrastructure all by himself. This was a lie. Hitler didn't have any money. You could only build autobots with one thing, capital investment, and that investment came mainly from America. The Nazis were also given a lot of help from the city of London, help which came mainly in the shape of Sir Montague Colin Norman, governor of the Bank of England. Norman was connected to Bush and Walker through the merger of Harriman's with the Brown Brothers, who traded in London as Brown Shipley, hence Brown Brothers Harriman. The people behind this multinational investment bank had a long-standing racial tradition. Few British people at the time were aware that they only enjoyed relatively cheap clothing because it was all made from slave cotton brought from America on the Brown Brothers ships and sold to British Malones. Montague Norman was heir to this colossal Brown Brothers fortune. As the de facto head of world banking, he made no secret of his only being interested in the richest 1% of people. And even as the newspapers began to fill with stories of Nazi concentration camps, he still declared himself to be Hitler's most avid supporter. We must lend Nazi Germany 90 million marks, he declared. It may never be repaid, but it will be less of a loss than the fall of Nazism. One might have thought Sir Montague's close personal friends, the royal family, would have been outraged by his comments. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is part of the remit of this film to try and make people aware of the tricks the rich play in order to control how they think. George Orwell once said that the ruling class in every age have tried to impose a false view of the world upon their followers. And there's no better example than the way in which the British 
have been duped into believing that their own family are called Windsor, a descent from English kings like Henry VIII. The British royal family are, actually, German, and their real name is Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. The only change to Windsor after Windsor Castle in 1917 to hide the fact that they were German during the First World War. Prince Harry, in honour of his German roots, has been known to dress as a Nazi on several occasions. Dozens of critics have pointed out that the Duke of Edinburgh's brother was the head of the Nazi SS. And King Edward VIII, before he abdicated to marry the American divorcee, Wallace Simpson, visited Hitler to make it abundantly clear to the whole world that he too was a Nazi. He even signed his name, Herzog von Windsor. Thinking people during this period realized that this whole thing with kissing up the Fuhrer somehow transcended national boundaries. The rich people from the most diverse countries had bonded together because they all shared a common goal. The kings and the queens and the international bankers and industrialists wanted to make certain communism could never succeed. They were determined they weren't going to finish up that Russian royal family, and they were determined to hang on to their money. They were much more afraid of the ordinary working people in their own countries than they were of fascist Germany. And this prevailing sentiment amongst the world's ruling class led America's elite to attempt a fascist coup d'etat in 1934. I hope it will be plain to people by now that Hitler's economic miracle is the greatest myth in human history. There was no economic miracle. There are no miracles. And if there are, why can't the Germans do it all again now? If you want to construct a network of new roads, new steelworks, and new factories, you need one thing, money. You need investment. And the investment didn't come from Hitler. It came from Brown Brothers Harriman and their business associate, Fritz Thiessen. It came from Jean Marchat and his best friend, Simon the Ducal of Norman. It came from men like Axel Wenegrin, the Swedish multimillionaire arms manufacturer, and Charles Bedeau, the French business model. These people were all in the same bed with their Nazi friends, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the Dulles brothers, Prescott Sheldon Bush, and George Herbert Walker, with whom they'd created the Union Bank for laundering Nazi money. With stage one of their plan for world domination complete, they now turned to the second phase, which was meant to be the overthrow of American democracy and the imposition of fascist government upon the United States. In order to pull this off, these Nazis raised money from America's richest families, many of whom, in this new consumerist society, had become household names. The Colgate family, the Birdseye family, the DuPont family, the Rockefeller family, these people handed over millions to the American financiers of Hitler so they could hire, train and supply a private army which would attempt to overthrow the democratically elected government of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and impose fascist dictatorship in America. Of course, it's natural to wonder, considering they had such advantages, how on earth did they ever pull it off? The simple answer is that they chose the wrong man because their choice to lead this Nazi insurrection was Major General Smedley Donington Butler the most decorated soldier of the period and in all of American history, perhaps the most unsung hero of the world. Because Smedley Butler was the most genuine Democrat and lover of liberty the world has ever seen. I 
appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena, to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote, and the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. Smedley Butler tricked the populace into thinking he was interested for just long enough until he was sure who all the major players were, and then he told the president. This put FDR in a quite impossible position. America at that time was just coming out of the Great Depression. The last thing he wanted was to cause another economic downturn, and he feared that if he scooped up all the leading bankers and captains of industry in the United States and threw them all in jail, the country just might fall apart. So what could he do? To Smedley Butler's utter incredulity, he chose, in the end, to do nothing. In spite of the fact that these men had committed treason and should have been hanged, their power was such that they were not even charged, let alone tried. And so great was their influence, they were able to keep America out of the war until December the 7th, 1941. Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt finally realized he had to do something. His response was the Trading with the Enemy Act, which allowed him to seize assets like the Union Bank, through which Bush, Walker, and Harriman had been financing FISA. Roosevelt didn't realize, however, that it was already a case of too little, too late. Because without his knowledge, American business moguls had been tumbling over one another for two years in their efforts to assist and do business with the Hitler regime. Typical of this American spirit of enterprise was Sosthenes Ben, the president of AT&T, who flew immediately to Berlin when war was declared to put in Hitler's phone lines. He gave the Nazis the most high-tech, state-of-the-art telecommunications system in the world at that time so that Hitler could rule the European mainland with the maximum efficiency. Rich men have been hiring thugs do their dirty work, especially to frighten people, since human civilization began. What people have to try to appreciate is that Nazism, in reality, was simply the first time in human history that the rich had enough wealth to hire an entire country of thugs to do their dirty work. Some of the most emotive images in world history are those of the Nazi warship sweeping across the Low Countries to begin their occupation of France. And people have always assumed that the trucks used for the miles long troop convoys must have been German trucks. But if anyone at that time had taken the trouble to lift up the cowling and look at the engine, they would have found these were actually Ford trucks which had been built with personal permission from Henry Ford, who was sitting in his office 4,000 miles away in Dearborn, Michigan, a 
the service for which he was given, the Grand Cross of the Eagle, the highest honor the Nazis ever bestowed on a civilian. Ford sued the U.S. Army, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, government in, uh, in the 50s because during the war the U.S. Uh, Air Force bombed their tank-making facilities in Germany. And they, this is true. And what was it, 52 or something, they sued the U.S. government for, for destroying their factories. And they won. They won the lawsuit. So I had to write a little song for Henry. Hitler so admired Henry Ford, he kept a life-size portrait of him on the wall next to his desk, and even his legendary Panzer tanks were tainted by these sorts of practices, because they were made by I.G. Farben who had entered into a cartel with the Rockefellers standard oil. The government in Washington knew all about this and largely did nothing. Licensing arrangements for trading with the enemy in wartime were issued without any fuss, even to the extent that after the occupation of France, the Chase and Morgan banks in Paris simply carried on doing business as usual. The incredible truth which the rich elite managed to hide from the world for 70 years through their control over school books and our education system is that the Nazi war machine was actually an American business. And for the Rockefellers, DuPonts, Harmons, Walkers and Bushes in particular, it was a highly lucrative business. For their part, Coca-Cola's contribution to the war effort was to sell billions of soft drinks to the thirsty Nazis while they were strafing and bombing Allied soldiers, particularly in very hot regions. In the deserts, where refrigerators tend to be scarce, there were even stories of Messerschmitt pilots wrapping wet towels around bottles of coke, tying them to their aircraft, then flying up to altitude, where the cold and the wind chill turned the wet towel into a solid block of ice. They would then dive down, crack open the towel, and enjoy an ice-cold coke in the desert. If they had wanted to, the Western multinationals could have grounded the Luftwaffe and stopped the war at any time, because the German aircraft were totally dependent on imported supplies of tetraethyl lead, an additive which prevents knocking in aero engines. But Standard Oil kept the supply of this vital resource going through neutral Switzerland for the entire war. And any Dutch people who might be wondering at this point what kind of percentage the Swiss took from this little arrangement, they need to be aware that thanks to Prince Bernhard von Lippe of the Netherlands, the father of the recently retired Queen Beatrix, a prominent member of the Nazi party, Royal Dutch Shell gave Hitler millions of tons of crude oil for nothing. The Dutch royal family actually fueled the invasion force which annexed Holland and were instrumental in helping the Nazis to rape their own country. But most shocking of all is the truth of what really happened in the little Polish town of Otsvitsin. This sleepy little hamlet just happened to be in an extremely mineral-rich region, particularly for coal, which Western industrialists had wanted to get their hands on for years. With the coming of the Hitler regime and the invasion of Poland, 
the fascist financiers had the bright idea of turning this conquered region into an investor's paradise by building a Nazi concentration camp near the town and utilizing the slave labor available to drastically reduce their own production costs. Few people are aware of the gigantic scale of the Nazi concentration camp network and are blissfully unaware that the real purpose behind their construction was to make a profit for the rich, which is why they stole all the gold watches, gold wedding rings and gold teeth fillings and melted them down into gold ingots. To this day, there are bars of gold lying in the vaults of the Bank of England, which have the Nazi swastika stamped on them. Gold stolen from Jewish corpses. It shouldn't come as any great surprise that George Herbert Walker's family were slave owners on the cotton plantations of 1930s America. Walker was used to organizing slave labor. So while his business associate, Avril Harriman, was paying for Hitler's half-million SS troops and supplying them all with brand new tons and submachine guns, because he did, Walker took over the management of this new Polish concentration camp. And when his Nazi friends started complaining that they couldn't pronounce the name Oswitzim any better than I can, they all got together and decided they had better Germanize the name into something and sat more comfortably on Nazi tongues. It was in this way that the world first heard of Auschwitz. Because the truth about Auschwitz and the entire Nazi war machine is that they were essentially no different to McDonald's. They were American business enterprises abroad, businesses which the richest European families invested in, and businesses which, because of slave labor, made obscene profits, which Prescott Sheldon Bush took and placed in a blind trust, which later financed a Bush political dynasty, which produced two presidents of the United States, his son, George Herbert Walker Bush, and his grandson, George Walker Bush. This picture of the railway leading into Auschwitz has, since World War II, become the iconic image of the Holocaust. To us, it now represents something like the gate to hell, but how differently one wonders would we have looked at this image all of our lives if we had always known that this railway line was an American railway line laid by the Harriman brothers on behalf of Uncle Sam. The Standard Oil IG Farben cartel even made the Zyklon B gas for the Jewish Holocaust. Now anyone who at this point is thinking that all this simply cannot be true, because if it was, someone would have sued, well someone did. This information came into the public domain because of a Dutch intelligence agent who was so disgusted when he found all of this out, he leaked it to the press. As a result of which, two very senior Jewish gentlemen, Kurt Julius Goldstein and Peter Gingold, filed suit against the American government. Of course, the more discriminating among us will now be asking how it can be that this story went completely unreported in the mainstream media. One might just as well ask why the Times in London was writing favourable stories about the Nazi concentration camps throughout the 1930s, and why Lord Rothmere was still referring to Hitler as a great gentleman as late as 1940. You really would think by now that people would have realised that it isn't so much the bias in the media which really matters. It's the things they know about, but never tell you, that really matter. Because the truth is that the press knew exactly what was going on in the concentration camps all through the war. They never said a word about it, 
because they knew who was making money from the slave labor. Now, it's very easy to imagine what the response of a conservative politician, American Albrecht, would be to all of this. If all of this is true, he's bound to ask why nobody said a word about the American industrialists building Hitler's war machine at the Nuremberg trials. How come it never got mentioned? Where's the responsibility of the Vatican? We signed in 1933 the Concordat with Hitler giving him his first tremendous prestige. Are we now to find the Vatican guilty? Where's the responsibility of the Lord Leader Winston Churchill, who said in an open letter to the London Times in 1938, 1938, Your Honor, were England to suffer national disaster, I should pray to God to send a man of the strength of mind and will of an Adolf Hitler. We now to find Winston Churchill guilty. Where's the responsibility of those American industrialists who helped Hitler to rebuild his armaments and profited by that rebuilding? Are we now to find the American industrialists guilty? No, Your Honor. No. Germany alone is not guilty. The whole world is as responsible for Hitler as Germany. It is an easy thing to condemn one man in the dark. It is easy to condemn the German people to speak of the basic flaw in the German character that allowed Hitler to rise to power. But at the same time, comfortably ignore the basic flaw of character that made the Russians sign pacts with him, Winston Churchill praise him, American deserts profit by him. American deserts profit by him. In school, we are taught that the Allies defeated Nazi Germany in World War II. This is not true. The Nazis won the war. Because the real Nazis, the rich, played on both sides. That's what a rich businessman does. He arranges things so that he is well thought of by both sides. So then whoever wins, he wins his money is safe. Now a lot of people will still think it is simply ludicrous to suggest the Second World War was a phony war. They are bound to say that no one who was there at the time thought it was a phony war. Really? The new baby, 200 gross of buckles, unlimited petrol, and all the whiskey you want. You're sitting pretty close to it. Yes, it is a lovely war. Well, wouldn't you if you were in my place? Wouldn't everybody? Doesn't everybody? It was a blasted phony anyway. I'm a bit tired of that. Tired of what? This phony war business. So, well, isn't it? No, it's not. I've just come out of hospital after ten days in an open boat off the Pharaohs, and I'm sick and tired of blokes like you with soft jobs ashore. Come outside. Now, don't be silly. I've lost two fingers off that hand, but I'm going to take you outside and knock your block off with my right. Oh, I'll take it easy. There's no need for that. So I apologize. I'll come outside if you insist. That won't do. It's not his fault. It's the fault of all of us. You make me sick. All of you. It may be a phony war to you, but it's not to all the boys at sea. It never has been. Obviously, the British, and the Dutch in particular, 
will have a very hard time accepting that their royal family profited from Nazi concentration camp slave labor. But if you go online, there is so much about this on the internet now. It's become plain that historians are more and more proving that those days were really all about the Western world's rich coming together to fund a Nazi war machine which was meant to protect them from the Soviets. The Duke of Edinburgh practically admitted this when he said, in those days we were anti-communist because the Russians killed half my bloody family. And when this cabal of secret Nazis got together to discuss how they were going to pay for this Nazi war machine, because rich people never accept a loss, they hired a psychopath, Hitler, who they knew would go along with their building concentration camps so that slave labor would pay for all the planes and the tanks and the guns. And you can see in the more intelligent movies from that period, like Hitchcock's Saboteur, that the artists and writers of that time knew the rich were fascist and completely understood what they were really up to. Why is it that you sneer every time you refer to this country? You've done pretty well here. I don't get it. No, you wouldn't. You're one of the ardent believers, a good American. All the millions like you, people that plod along without asking questions. I hate to use the word stupid, but it seems to be the only one that applies. The great masses, the moron million. Well, there are a few of us who are unwilling to just troop along. A few of us who are clever enough to see that there's much more to be done than just live small in the place of life. Few of us in America would desire a more profitable type of government. When you think about it, Mr. Kane, the competence of totalitarian nations is much higher than ours. They get things done. Yeah. They get things done. They bomb cities, sink ships, torture and murder so you and your friends can eat off a gold plate. It's a great philosophy. I neither intend to be bombed nor sunk, Mr. Kane. That's why I'm leaving now. And if things don't arrive for you, if uh, we should win, then I'll come back. Perhaps I can get what I want then. Power. Yes. I want that as much as you want your comfort or your job or that girl. We all have different tastes, as you can see. Only I'm willing to back my tastes with the necessary force. Where was the Mafia while all this was going on? Well, a great deal which historians have learned recently, especially from sources like Double Cross, the book written by Sam Giancarlo's brother, has made it clear that the Mafia was much the same as the so-called German economic miracle and the American-financed Nazi war machine in concentration camps. The mob, in reality, was a very different animal from the one portrayed by the movies and the media. American feature films have tended to focus on the exploits of gangsters like Richard Kane, famous crime-busting Chicago cop who was planted in the police force to be a spy for Giancarlo, and hoods like Charles Nicoletti and Milwaukee Phil Aldericio, two of his favorite hitmen who built their own hitmobile so they could shoot people from the back of a moving car. Amongst many other atrocities this pair committed was one in which they forced the head of Billy McCarthy into a vice and squeezed until his eyeball popped out. An incident which a certain American film director felt was so entertaining, he included it in one of his movies. 
What most people have failed to realize, however, is that in most cases, the Mafia chieftains who actually ran organized crime did not approve, generally speaking, of these acts of gross brutality. Not that they gave a damn about morals, but the cleverest amongst them, like Paul the Waiter Rica, realized that sensationalized events like the St. Valentine's Day massacre produced public outrage and a crackdown on their illegal activities. Rico realized that the effectiveness of monsters like Diamond Joe Esposito came from keeping a low profile. And it was the Mafia bosses who learned this lesson best, Santos Traficante and San Giancarlo in particular, who in later years became the most successful. Even today, few Americans appreciate the extent to which their country was being controlled by organized crime in the 1930s. The mob were in total control of Hollywood because all the union labor needed to make films. Carpenters, set construction, catering. They were all under the control of the mob. In particular, the control of the Teamsters Union, the drivers and haulage people who made essential deliveries to absolutely everyone meant that virtually all American business was caught in the web of Mafia racketeering. Studio bosses like Harry Cohn, Louis B. Mayer, and the Warner Brothers knew they had to play along to get anything done at all. The big studio heads, like all rich businessmen, found they were forced to become friends with Mafia dogs. And the individual who exploited this situation most effectively was a gangster few people have ever heard of. Murray the Camel Humphreys. Generally speaking, the ethnically Italian gangsters of this period were coarse, brutal, and most importantly, ignorant men. They had no education. They couldn't hold an intelligent conversation because they'd spent no time in school. Don Corleone, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. This made doing business with refined and sophisticated entrepreneurs difficult, not to say embarrassing. Sam Giancana was quick to spot this, so whenever a business deal needed to be made by someone with style and sophistication, he would send along his silver-tongued Welshman, Murray the Camel, so-called because he was known for being sartorial and for cutting a dash in expensive camel hair coats. Humphreys became a crucial figure during the pre-war period because his contact with the luminaries of Hollywood meant he received invitations from senior politicians who wanted to rub shoulders with stars like Clark Gable, George Raft, Cary Grant, Gary Cooper, Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra, all of whom were mafia-controlled and used by the mob as bagmen, moving colossal sums of money around the country because Giancana cynically realized the authorities were too starstruck to ever check their luggage. He even used a priest for the same purpose, who we referred to as Father Cash. And just as the priest was happy to take his percentage, so the politicians, who Giancana always maintained were the easiest to corrupt, were happy to do the same. In Esposito's time, he had boasted of buying votes for Calvin Coolidge. By the time of World War II, Sam Giancana was boasting to his younger brother, we own the White House. He was adamant that every state governor, congressman and senior judge in the country was on the take. And the mob's most spectacular success 
as they sought control over all the big players, was their corrupting of FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. It's become fairly widely known in recent years that Hoover was a transvestite homosexual. What is less well known is the elaborate scheme he dreamed up for accepting mafia bribes. What he used to do was to go to the $2 window at the racetrack, where he was photographed many times by the press to give himself a clean, upstanding image. What the pressmen didn't know was that he always took along a crooked emissary who placed huge bets, which ran into the thousands, at another window on races which were fixed by the mob boss Frank Costello. By keeping Hoover supplied with millions in winnings and holding on the compromising photographs of the FBI chief having sex with his lover, Clyde Tolson, which several CIA agents claim they've seen, the Mafia had American law enforcement entirely under their control. So the question then is, what do you do with that kind of power? The answer is that when you're the American Mafia, you routinely wipe out what they call do-gooders. This is how organized crime has influenced American society for nearly a century. If a decent man becomes a rising star in politics and looks as if he might try to make a better life for ordinary people, they simply kill him as a matter of routine. And in the book they wrote together, Chuck and Sam Giancarlo Jr. are at pains to point out that a classic early case of this practice was the assassination of Anton Shermack. Shermack was a democratic politician who had tried to crack down on Al Capone's bootlegging operations. Many felt he would go on to become a great president himself until he was shot while on stage with FDR by Giuseppe Zangara. After the murder, Zangara claimed it was a political act and he ought to be entitled to clemency because he simply hated all rich people. But this was actually what he'd simply been told to say by the mob who were using him as a fall guy. When he went to the electric chair, Sam Giancarlo turned to his brother and expressed his pleasure at how nice and neat the whole affair had been. And he further explained that choosing a patsy to wipe out a politician who was a do-gooder was something the Italian mafia had been doing forever. It was a practice as old as the Sicilian hills. And he was amazed at how the mafia kept getting away with it. Because you really would think people would catch on. This was 1935. You have a decent chief executive murdered in broad daylight, shot by a patsy, who was later killed himself by the authorities. Does this sound familiar? However, even in Shermack's time, the mob could not be said to be in complete control of American life. Because while they controlled the streets through their influence over politics and the justice system, they were not yet in control of the United States military or its mainstream media. Tragically, this all started to change with a series of events which began with the scuttling of the SS Normandy by a Manhattan-based Nazi agent. This was February the 9th, 1942. And having just joined the war, the United States was trying to keep its allies supplied with vital war material using convoys which were loaded on the waterfront and sailed almost every day out of New York Harbor. As everyone knows, many fell prey to the wolf packs of German U-boats, and the Normandy had been designed for much greater speed specifically so that she could outrun them. When she fell to sabotage, it was a colossal blow to the Allied war effort, and in response, a naval intelligence officer, Anthony Marslow, decided to enlist the help of the New York Mafia because he knew they were in control of all commercial activity on the docks. The subterfuge 
my foreign intelligence agents ceased. But the price America paid was calamitous. Because getting the Mafia's help and getting permission from the boss of bosses, Lucky Lucanio. It is one of history's great ironies that the United States government went crawling to the Mafia for help at a moment when the mob themselves had just been severely weakened and could have been crushed altogether by an administration with enough political will. The notorious Lucanio had just started a 40-year prison sentence in Great Meadow Penitentiary, and most of his Sicilian gangsters back home were already behind bars, having been caught up at Mussolini's Mafia purge. Being himself Italian, Mussolini knew there was only one way to deal with the Mafia, and when he came to power, he ordered his iron prefect, Cesare More, to simply lock up all the Mafia families in Sicily, which wasn't exactly difficult because everybody knew who they were. Of course, after the Allied invasion of Sicily, Marsler then compounded his error by choosing Sicilian-Americans like New York Mayor Charles Belletti and OSS officer Joseph Russo, whose father was born in Corleone, to head AMGOT, the Allied military government, whose job it was to restore community cohesion on the island. And of course, their way of doing this was not only to let all the mafiosi out of jail, they even made known mob bosses like Gianco Russo and Don Calogero Vizzini into the heads of local government and gave them full civilian and military power over the island. So this was the accident of history through which the Mafia began its relationship with American military intelligence. It was a catastrophe for Italy, which has been ruled over by organized crime ever since. It was a catastrophe for Sicily, which suffered a brutal murder every three days in the post-war period, and it was a catastrophe for America, which saw many once vibrant communities, particularly New Jersey, have the heart ripped out of them by Mafia extortion and drug dealing. Lucky Luciano was deported after being released from jail, and having found a kindred spirit in another secret organization, the newly created Central Intelligence Agency, he was then able to combine the activities of organized crime, particularly international drug running, with smuggling of American-made weapons. This unholy alliance gave the world its first ever pirates who flew aeroplanes. That's what these people became, pirates with aeroplanes. The CIA became the world's primary import-export of narcotics and used the colossal profits to fuel wars around the world, thereby enabling their friends in the military-industrial complex to sell yet more weapons. Under the disguise of liberal democracy, these men who had financed Hitler became the enemies of liberty and democracy on a planet-wide basis. And as if to underline their Nazi credentials, they also hired all of the former German Nazi intelligence officers, like Reinhard Galen, who were out of a job at the end of the war, and brought them into the fold at the beginning of the Cold War, even though they were perfectly well aware that these men had committed genocide and should have been prosecuted as war criminals. Their attitude, quite clearly, was that as they had paid for Nazi Germany, they were entitled to pick over its carcass in any way they chose. This was yet another political catastrophe for the United States because these were the people who put together the notorious Operation Paperclip, which rounded up all of the Nazi rocket scientists, like Werner von Braun, and put them to work for their new American Nazi owners to give them, for the first time in human history, ICBMs with nuclear warheads. They became the first men ever to have the power to destroy the whole world at the touch of a button. And it was clear to many observers at the time that it all rather went to their heads. I can no 
longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. They saw themselves as giants who were looking down and laughing upon this planet of tiny fools who were stupid enough to go on and on killing each other while they sold arms to both sides throughout the Second World War. Focke-Wulf aeroplanes, which bombed American soldiers, were manufactured by IT&T. Allied sailors were drowning in a freezing North Atlantic because their convoys were sunk by guns of Nazi battleships, which swiveled on American-made ball bearings. American soldiers were crushed under the wheels of tanks and trucks made by Henry Ford and John Rockefeller, and gassed to death by the same people. Sam Giancana took the trouble to explain how this cynical process worked by composing just one terse, simple sentence which his brother wrote down for posterity. People give their lives, he said, just so a few fat cats can make a killing. And this was precisely what Smedley Butler had tried to explain to the world with his book, War is Just a Racket. At the war's end, the rich elite found fortune continuing to smile on them. Firstly, they were able to control the utter farce of the Nuremberg trials, which should have had every single American merchant banker and leading industrialist. As it was, their contribution to World War II remained hidden from public scrutiny, and they were even allowed to gerrymander light sentences for their German Nazi friends, like Jean Marchand, who got off with just a few years and later retired as a billionaire. But best of all was that the one man who might have been a check to their power passed away as soon as the war was over. And with President Roosevelt gone, and their first Nazi glove puppet, Hitler, also deceased, it became necessary for Prescott Bush to find another young politician to sponsor. In true American fashion, he decided to advertise. He placed an ad in the LA Times, which candidly explained that a group of rich businessmen was seeking a young, ambitious, immoral, and most definitely malleable politician who might one day run for president. The ad was deliberately worded in a cynical way because they knew that only an evil, slimy, and completely incorrigible little creep would ever dream of applying for the position. That was what they wanted, and that was what they got, in the shape of a certain Richard Nixon, here being congratulated on his success by his new master, Prescott Bush. And not long after this picture was taken, in 1947, Nixon engaged the services of a Jewish gangster who was working for Sam Giancana called Jacob Rubenstein, a man whom the world would one day come to know as Jack Ruby. Brutal truth, which the West must now confront, and an equally brutal problem the United States must now face, is the question of what has happened the U.S. military in the intervening years since it murdered its own commander-in-chief? The answer is that America's armed forces are now completely controlled by the American Mafia. The mob don't even need hitmen anymore. They use United States Marines as assassins. They are, as Sam Giancana said, one organization who keep a low profile while they control the world as a business. And in an effort to prove this is so, in 1998, Pastor Rick Strawcutter videotaped a quite remarkable interview with Kay Pollard Griggs, 
formerly the wife of Colonel George Brooks, who for many years was the head of NATO. He was also an alcoholic of that well-known kind who was shy and unable to communicate when they are sober, but who then cannot stop talking once they have a drink. During the course of a stormy marriage, punctuated by periods of domestic violence, which cost Kate Briggs many black eyes and broken bones, she learned that her husband had been turned into a brutal psychopath as a consequence of his military training, which included induction into what is known as the Pink Triangle, the Cherry Marines. Over the years, far too much has been written about Lee Harvey Oswald. But what is remarkable is that few historians were ever aware that like most Marines who worked in intelligence, he was homosexually recruited and was part of the same-sex club, which included Jack Ruby, George Senator and David Ferry. Kay Griggs explains that these selection procedures came into the US military when the cream of the death's head sporting Nazi top brass joined at the American ranks at the war's end. Ever since then, the Greek had started traditions which Hitler so admired and which were integral to the German army and found their way into American military culture and are now manifest in the way that the old skull and bones procedure for identifying and most importantly controlling rising stars is now used to select the top brass of the future. In a nutshell, boy soldiers who want to rise in the ranks can only do so by doing favours for the older men. So George Bush, I mean, all these people rise up to the ranks and the same club. No wonder, you know, I saw a little TV clip one time where a reporter was asking George Bush and others about the, uh, the Order of the Skull and Bones. You were both in Skull and Bones, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? I mean, if this really got out, that these guys are all inducted because they've got some kind of homosexual right. thing on them. Indoctrination. I mean, or induction. They have to do that. Yeah. They do that. Yeah. Even They're if... coughing. And, and if even now coming into the military tournament, the chiefs do that. They put them in the coffin. They do the bowling ball trick. Okay, you're going to explain this. What happens when you get in the coffin? Why do you get in a coffin? Oh, they, they get... When, when you get your eagles, that's uh -huh. a German thing. Okay. You know, it's what the German high command did. Most of them, you know, have the boyfriends and stuff, the troops and, and all of that. It is a German thing that they say goes back to Greece, and it's all the male marine-looking men that they, they do it with. So now the chiefs have to do that. What they do is they get, George said, it's like a zoo. They, they get everybody really drunk, and they sometimes call it dining in. Um, shellback is another term that they do it. Not everybody does it, but the ones who do it, if they're young, they, they get right up to the top. It's a... Uh, okay, well, what exit do they do? They've got a coffin they get inside Anal sex. Oh, oh, that. They, they do... They put them in the coffin, and they do something. This is how military recruits are now controlled. And the Mafia military exert a similar hold over all career politicians. At some time on the way up, they are maneuvered into a compromising position, usually through the use of two-way mirrors at a brothel. But once the Mafia military have got something on them, 
the career politicians, judges, senior police officers and media moguls face a stark choice. Either take your payoff, which is usually worth millions of dollars, or go to jail for life for your misdemeanor. It is with these kinds of tactics, first used by Sam Giancana in the 1930s, that what are now known as the five mafia families of the New York metropolitan area, the Genovese, Gambino, Lucchese, Colombo and the Milano, control all politics in the United States, and through their business arrangements with the Five Star Generals and CIA, control all cocaine and heroin trafficking throughout the entire world. After the dust had settled and the Kennedy assassination, Sam Giancana explained to his younger brother that the mob and the CIA had taken care of JFK together because they were essentially two sides of the same coin. In the last 50 years, that relationship between these two secret societies has become even closer to the point where they are now indistinguishable. The people who live in the third world are so well aware of what was really going on they have come to call the CIA the cocaine importing agency. The World Wide Web now abounds with proof to back this up. And although many people were skeptical at first about Kay Griggs, in recent times her most sensational claims have been fully endorsed by the FBI chief Ted Gunderson, who gave several interviews in support. This cult was involved in distributing drugs up and down the East Coast. Drugs that were being flown in from Southeast Asia in military and planes. The operation was by the certain army personnel and also CIA. She told me that there were generals involved in the drug operation. There were police officers and at least two attorneys in the Fayetteville, North Carolina area. The path that this led me down is mind-boggling. Over the last 23, 24 years, I have developed so much information about the situation as it exists in our great country and gone public with it as much as possible, and yet I am being ignored. What is basically happening is that the United States military use air force bases in Europe to connect with the third world, particularly Pakistan and Afghanistan, where the poppy fields are cultivated. This is the real reason for the conflict in Afghanistan. It's to protect the record harvests of heroin, which almost ended when the Taliban took power. But they don't tell the soldiers this, and it's a truth you'll never hear on NBC or BBC. Having brought the refined cocaine and heroin into Europe and the United States, it is then passed on to the Mafia for sale at street level, sometimes by police officers in uniform. It's an arrangement which nets the generals and the Mafia chiefs billions. The fact that someone of Ted Gunderson's credibility was completely ignored when he went public with this information underlines the fact that our entire mainstream media, as well as the entire justice system, has been bought off. So the question must now be asked, if this shadow government of the world's only superstate can get away with the murder of a president and through their wealth, be in total control of the United States military, media, and the justice system. What else might they be getting away with? Could it possibly be that the serious researchers have been right all along? And remembering what happened to Flight 553, that 
truly was a huge confidence trick. Once the dust had settled on 9-11, people immediately began to realize there was something very wrong with the 9-11 TV coverage. First, along came Dylan Avery with his amazing film, Bruce Change. He proved conclusively that the official report was nonsense because aircraft fuel does not burn at even half the temperature required to melt steel, and that the towers defied the laws of physics by collapsing with perfect uniformity at free-fall speed. Buildings in Germany, which were bombed over and over again, didn't collapse with perfect uniformity down the ground level. Avery also pointed out that in Kennedy's time, his chiefs of staff drafted plans to kill innocent people and commit acts of terrorism in the United States in order to whip up support for a war with Cuba. Codenamed Operation Northwoods, these plans included hijacking planes, and blowing up ships and landmark buildings in order to stimulate a helpful wave of national indignation which could be used to oust Fidel Castro. And there wasn't anything exceptional in this initiative. Northwoods was an offshoot of the notorious Operation Gladio, a sustained campaign organized by MI6 and the CIA, which perpetrated many bombing atrocities in post-war Europe which they blamed on what they said were communist terror organizations. A typical example was the horrific bombing of Bologna railway station in 1980. Italians will be appalled to learn this outrage was committed by the Americans and the British. But this particular atrocity, which like all others during this period was intended to keep people living in fear of a bogus enemy, so they would accept increasing state control by so-called strong leaders, illustrates only too well the fact that some 40 years prior to 9-11, the cabal of secret Nazis who killed Kennedy were making serious preparations for terrorist attacks upon their European allies and even upon their own country. In the 9-11 news footage, it is abundantly clear that the interviewees are actually paid actors, speaking lines which have been written for them. I feel like I was in a movie. This is exactly the same situation as in The Men Who Killed Kennedy. And because these are people who are being expected to perform, they tend to overdo it. I could do only one of them. It is perfectly clear that the 9-11 street people are trying much too hard to convince their audience. Approximately several minutes after the first plane had hit, 
I saw this plane come out of nowhere and just ream right into the side of the Twin Tower, exploding through the other side. And then I witnessed both towers collapse, one first and then the second, mostly due to structural failure because the fire was just too intense. 9-11 was, in reality, just another CIA special effects movie production. And it really has become the Kennedy assassination's long-lost twin, because witnesses who know the truth of what really happened are all being murdered. This didn't stop some people from immediately pointing out that the London tube bombings were a hoax. The alleged terrorists couldn't have ridden into London on a train which was cancelled. And seasoned researchers are now becoming quite surprised at how sloppy and obvious these alleged terrorist acts are becoming. Any detective would instantly realize the Woolwich Terror incident was a joke. We were shown pictures of a supposedly decapitated man lying prone on the street. If that were true, he should be lying in a puddle of his own blood, and the alleged attacker would be soaked in blood all over his front from arterial spray. All terrorism is fake. It is military deception practiced by the rich upon the poor in an ongoing class war. And the most important weapon at their disposal in this class war are television presenters. The BBC has actually become the Ministry of Truth from Orwell's 1984. Everyone working for the BBC today is a whore of the ruling class and a traitor to our way of life because it is very hard to believe they are all unwitting accomplices in this class war. When we remember that it was some of the BBC's own journalists who revealed that the 9-11 hijackers were all alive, it's hard to accept that their news presenter colleagues haven't figured out the totalitarian nature of what people like Jane Stanley, who reported the collapse of World Trade Center 7 20 minutes before it came down, are really up to. And yet still they go on giving us reassuring smiles while telling lies on behalf of the ruling class. Of course then people ask, oh, yes, 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 but why would they do it? Why is all of this Muslim, multicultural, political correctness thing happening to us right now? It's happening because we no longer have an enemy. Tourists today can visit what used to be the Eastern Bloc, and they can photograph the derelict, rusting heap of scrap metal, which used to be the Soviet war machine. It has gone, and this has created an unprecedented political situation which the world has never seen before, in which there is only one superstate, the Anglo-American Alliance. No other power on Earth today is capable of fighting a war on the grand scale. China, North Korea, Russia simply do not have the economic resources. So in order to make us believe we still have an enemy, and therefore have to live in fear, the rich had to provide us with a new enemy. And this is why in recent years they've encouraged unstable Islamic people to emigrate to the West. It's to provide us with a ready-made enemy. This is their master plan for this single superstate age. And it's for this reason that they perverted political correctness to make people believe that anybody who refuses to go along with this new doctrine of multiculturalism is the worst person of all. In the West today, we've become quite used to seeing confrontations between the alleged lunatic fringe of Islam and indigenous white men 
who are trying to defend their culture from foreign influences. What groups like the EDL do not understand, however, is who is really pulling the strings here? Who is behind this? Who arranged this fight? Because any Roman senator would tell you this is simply the old maxim of divide and rule. The Romans invented this system. They always made sure that every conquered region pushed together tribes who were traditionally hostile to one another. The British copied this method after World War I by redrawing the entire map of the Middle East to make sure that the new boundaries always set one Arab tribe against another, particularly the Kurds. What we see on the streets of Britain and America today is the same thing. The whole idea is that while you're fighting against Muslims, and they're fighting against you, no one has the time to stop and think about who actually created this situation and who their real enemy really is. The rulers of the Middle Ages arranged a never-ending religious war between Catholic and Protestant for precisely the same reason. Now, why must we always think we have an enemy? Because the ruling group always maintain their position in society by controlling the population through fear. Think about it. If we don't have an enemy, would the public be prepared to pay for the army? Would we be happy to pay for MI5 so that they can read our emails and put a surveillance camera on every street corner? Big Brother has to have an excuse for watching us all, all the time. And what they call national security is always the perfect excuse. The moment you make a world at peace, it's gone. The keystone in the arch of ruling class power is gone if we don't have an enemy. So the rich are always going to provide us with an enemy forever. And the lesson we need to learn from all of this is that everything in our lives is and always has been a rich man's trick. When people think of ancient Rome, they always tend to think about the gladiators in the Roman arena. But something people don't realize is that Roman amphitheaters were a scam. They were perhaps the very first big confidence trick in human history played by more cunning rich men upon a naive public. What Caesar did was to say to the Roman vulgate, I will give you gladiatorial games, but only if I can have your votes. And he only offered this bargain because he knew the Vulgate loved the games more than they loved anything. This is how the Roman maxim, Plan M et Kirkinsens, Bread and Circuses, became established. Because Caesar was the first politician to understand that if you give people what they want, they will tolerate being ruled. By this means, Julius Caesar made himself the first dictator whose fortune was protected by a professional army. And everything that every ruler has given us since Caesar has simply been another rich man's trick. Religion is a rich man's trick. It was invented because wealthy rulers realized the population was getting too big for soldiers to watch over constantly. So they replaced the idea of having many gods with one single god. A simple idea simple men could understand. You could see what everyone was doing all the time. The idea of one God became the surveillance video of the ancient world. 
In the Middle Ages, the same sort of people grew rich by charging people for the forgiving of sins. And when a new age dawned with the coming of Industrial Revolution, they invented new tricks to control the population explosion, like censorship. Every grown-up knows that there is one law for the rich, one law for the rest, because the justice system is a rich man's trick. Not for your godfathers like Sam Giancana walked free from American criminal courts over and over again by taking the Fifth Amendment because it is a criminal's law. And it's the same with everything else. The media is a rich man's trick. The tax system, because the rich never pay any tax, is a rich man's trick. Political correctness is a rich man's trick. The murder plot to kill Lady Diana Spencer was a rich man's trick. And the war on terror, 9-11, the London tube bombings, the Woolwich terror attack, the Kennedy assassination, all of it is simply another rich man's trick controlling how we think. Now, once again, it is very easy at this point to imagine the reaction of conservative politicians, who will, of course, try to laugh this off and scoff. Everything is a rich man's trick. Are we seriously suggesting that the Cold War was a rich man's trick? Now, in your research and analysis, and your efforts to bring out the facts about what was going on in our society, did you encounter any effort to discourage you, to prevent you from bringing out the background of America's involvement in the financing of international communism? Yes, very definitely. Um, for example, uh, when I was at the Institution, uh, in 1972, I went to Miami Beach to give some testimony before the um, Republican National Committee. And uh, although a congressman had hand-delivered to the wire services this testimony, which was later printed, uh, the wire services refused to transmit it to the newspapers. Then when I got back to Hoover Institution in California, um, I was called into the office of the director and... Uh, I was uh, told in no uncertain terms not to make any more speeches like that and that this information should not be made public. This was the information that we were uh, giving uh, the Soviet Union the technology to develop its war potential. At that time, we were in, we were in Vietnam. And as you know, the Soviets were supplying the North Vietnamese. This was 1972. 1972, yes. And uh, for example, I knew that the Gorky plant, which was built by Ford Motor Company, but the Gorky plant in Russia produces the gas in a series of vehicles. The gas vehicles had been seen on the Virginian trail. We were supplying equipment to the Gorky plant. In the middle of the Vietnamese War, and these trucks were being used to carry ammunition supplies, which were killing the Americans. And I thought this was not wrong. And I said to Miami Beach and the Cuban Institution, and it was this type of information uh, that was suppressed. The rich would much rather we didn't think at all. It's certainly not about the wise words of the columnist, Claire Rayner, who once famously said that the only reason we now have to live under kings and queens and presidents is that in past ages, their ancestors were the best thieves. In the Middle Ages, when the king was feeling greedy and wanted to pay for a new mistress or grand new palace, he simply sent out his robber barons to steal half the herd of every local farmer. And if they complained, the robber barons would say the king needed to feed the army or some similar excuse. That is how it was done then. But today, the ruling class face a different problem. We now live 
in an industrial age, and as George Orwell explains in his novel 1984, if the machine age was directed solely with the intention of making the common people physically comfortable, in a mega-productive, computer-controlled epoch, we could soon all live like billionaires. But think what this would mean. If we're all billionaires, we all fly first class. So the king and the queen and the president have to wait in a queue with everyone else. And do you honestly believe the Queen of England would wait in a queue behind you? If we're all millionaires, we all play golf. The king and the president can't get on the course. And there's no room on their exclusive beach. Orwell himself would have said the most important single sentence in 1984 was this one. If it once became general, wealth would confer no distinction. Our lords and masters are not going to wait in queues with the rest of us. So the special problem which fat cats face today is how to keep the wheels of industry turning because, as Orwell explains, the oligarchs have to make use of the masses without significantly raising the general standard of living. This is a more sophisticated age, so the robber barons need a more sophisticated means of stealing most of the wealth and of keeping most of the common people in poverty. What the rich face today is a situation in which the common people spend most of their lives on a 9-to-5 treadmill. They make things in factories, they grow things and harvest them, they teach in the schools, nurse in the hospitals. And as a result of their daily labours, a huge mountain of money is produced. Now the rulers have a problem. How can they keep the ordinary people hard at work so they're too exhausted at the end of every day to think about whether this is a fair system? The solution, as Sabji and Kana explained, is to invent a foreign enemy, a boogeyman, who wants to conquer the whole world. This becomes a perfect excuse to make people pay for a sophisticated array of increasingly expensive weapons which are made by companies which the fat cats themselves own. And in one neat little scale, the modern robber baron has a means of stealing most of the wealth produced by Western society while leaving the common people with just enough crumbs to keep them going. Every year, America's oligarchs take $3 trillion out of the United States economy. According to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. $2.3 trillion, with a T. That's $8,000 for every man, woman, and child in America. This is how the rich have rigged the system so that it benefits them at the expense of everyone else all the time. But in order to keep this fraud going, the public must always be convinced of the need for military expenditure. This is where all the phony terrorism comes in. And if we want to find out who is behind this ongoing hoax, we only have to look at Securicom, the company in charge of World Trade Center security, who removed all guards and sniffer dogs from the buildings on September 10th so that the charges which brought down the towers in controlled explosions could be planted. If we now ask, who is the chief of Securicom? Who do we find? Marvin P. Bush, brother of George W. Bush, son of the man who orchestrated the plot to assassinate President Kennedy, and grandson of the man who made the family fortune from Auschwitz slave labor. The Bush family and their rich friends have been behind all of it. During his time as president, George W. Bush connived with Tony Blair 
that introduced a deliberate policy of allowing unbalanced and aggressive Muslims to flood in Western countries. They did this in the hope that they would commit atrocities in their adopted countries. And they were actually delighted when the Washington DC sniper and the Fort Hood shootings made headlines because they knew such events would make it easier for the public to swallow the idea that 9-11 was simply more typical Islamic terrorism. The truth is that Islam is simply being used like a pawn on a chessboard in a game the fat cats have been playing since World War I. Seventy years ago, they gave us what they called their Hitler project. Fifty years ago, it was the JFK assassination project. Today, we're having to suffer the War on Terror project. And when this current lunacy is over, they'll have another excuse ready to create yet another phony war and yet another pattern. If George Orwell was still alive today, and he was asked to comment upon all the significant political events of the last decade, it's quite likely he would simply restate the Orwellian definition of totalitarianism, to wit, a society living by and for continuous warfare, in which the ruling caste have ceased to have any real function, but succeed in claim to power through force and fraud, and then ask whether this sounds like the world we live in. Because it ought to be obvious by now that our seemingly endless economic recessions are being deliberately orchestrated. In today's world, the commodities markets are arranged in such a way that the price of virtually everything, particularly food, hardly ever changes. So how then can it be that the price of oil increased tenfold in the last decade? Economists are now tacitly agreeing that this was due to financialization which is just a fancy way of saying which groups like the Bush family and their merchant bank friends used their trillionaire fortunes to rig the market. Why did they do this? Because great entrepreneurs like Stelios, with their budget air travel, had managed to break the cartel of the major airlines. Ordinary working families had begun living a jet-set lifestyle. The ruling elite of the entire world was simply terrified because a jet-set lifestyle is supposed to be the exclusive preserve of the rich. What would happen to their social status if the whole world were part of the jet-set? So, the rich arranged for the credit crunch, and now, working families who used to fly ten times a year can't even afford to use their car. What George Orwell understood better than anyone is that every age is basically the same. It is always a story in which a small elite group of greedy people came to unjust power and privileges by practicing an ongoing deception upon their followers. Caesar did it with bread and circuses in the Roman arena. George Bush did it with false flag terrorism on 9-11. British newspapers have told their readers that the Queen of England is only the 10th richest person in the UK with a fortune of 3 billion. But experts who have calculated her real wealth reckon that her ownership of one-sixth of all of the land on planet Earth puts her true fortune nearer to 22 trillion. And they also estimate the true wealth of the Queen's merchant bankers, the Rothschilds, the people who started all of this greed by lending money to the Harrimans and the Morgans to be at least 100 trillion. So finally, we have to ask, what is to be done about all this? For in the case of America, it is obvious that in order to honour the memory of President Kennedy, Americans are now duty bound to finish his work by finally ending the worldwide tyranny 
of the CIA. The time has come for ordinary Americans to ask their strong men in uniform just exactly what and who they think they are defending. And they better not take too long about it. Having established Islam in the West in order to provide us with an enemy, the elite have recently started on the second phase of their master plan, which is to wipe out anyone who is sick or disabled. In Britain, this has been manifest in the Atos scandal, which has stopped all welfare payments to people with terminal illnesses and allowed invalids, who in some cases have no limbs, to starve to death. The extermination of anyone considered feeble-minded or infirm was exactly how the Nazi regime began. And now, they've started doing it again. What most amazes me in all of this is the naivety of the good people at the truth movement who go on and on and on saying they want an independent inquiry. The Bush family and their rich friends are not going to investigate themselves. There isn't any authority on earth above that of the ruling class, so it's never going to happen. These people have got the police and the judges and the justice system completely under their control. The Queen of England cannot be prosecuted for anything, not even genocide, in a Crown Court, because the Crown Courts are hers. She owns British justice. The only way to change our corrupt system is through revolution. Everyone has to sign up to the Revolution Now website. And then the people have to march on Washington, just as they did for CIA agent Barack Obama's inauguration. Only this time, they need to kick him and every other crooked politician out and take power genuinely for the people's sake. And once again, they better not take too long about it, because the last time the rich decided to play a really big trick on the world, six million lives were extinguished. Supposing they decide to give us the world's first incidence of phony nuclear terrorism by dropping an atomic bomb on Cleveland or Birmingham or on Chicago, what then? But perhaps Chicago itself might be a good place to pause and offer a word of warning to the citizens of the United States before they start thinking about the next American Revolution. We should always remember that Al Capone was seen as a hero by the ordinary working people of his own time because he gave them what they wanted, rules, sex, gambling and drugs. And some Americans have even been candid enough to admit this. We all play numbers, we all go to the racetrack, you know what I mean? We all cheat a little bit. It hardly needs saying that Giancarlo, Marcello and Traficante would have gone out of business in no time if ordinary Americans hadn't been so fond of cocaine. And in the post-war period, many writers have noted the way in which the United States not only manifestly tolerated organized crime, but even seemed to be enchanted by it. It's a cultural phenomenon which has led many foreigners to wonder whether there is some sort of latent criminality in the very fabric of American society. Because there does seem to be some sort of tacit agreement amongst all Americans that killing a man should always be considered an option if it looks as if he might cost you a large sum of money. Suppose we'll have to kill him. 
suppose you have any ideas on that, Diana? Well, what would you fella say to an assassination? I hope you don't have any hidden tape machines in this office, right? We're talking about a capital crime here. I'd like to hear some more opinions on that. I don't see we have any option, Frank. Let's kill this animal. This film is likely to lead Americans with the impression that JFK was assassinated by a corrupt and brutal ruling class. Perhaps they should ask themselves if they are quite sure that he wasn't simply killed by America. So it seems that finally we are left with a very simple question. What kind of society is it which kills its own best men? <laughs>